This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Mark Sklar, doctor of acupuncture and oriental medicine, also known as the fertility expert. We discuss all things Chinese medicine, including cupping, moxibustion, and acupuncture, and how Chinese medicine helps with conditions like PCOS, Hashimoto's, and infertility. We also cover how to find the right practitioner and how state laws impact standard of care. For the past 18 years, Dr. Sklar uses virtual fertility consultations, coaching, and fertility programs to help couples struggling to conceive and regulating women's and men's hormones and reproductive health. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sklar. I am a doctor of Chinese medicine. I am the current sitting president of the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine, and I am a uh, fertility specialist practicing in San Diego, but I do work with patients from all over the world, depending on uh, their needs and, and how I can support them. So, you know, I've been doing this for about 18 years. And, um, you know, fertility and reproductive health is really a passion of mine. It has been for quite some time. From about 20 years ago um, is when, 20, 21 years ago, when I got into this specialty um, is when it became a passion. It's a really like a, a, a love um, of mine since the first patient I ever helped uh, get pregnant because I think it's really so impactful and so beautiful to be able to help uh, a couple um, or an individual for that matter, um, be able to have a child and, and, and have a family. I'm curious, what is your role as president for the Board of Oriental Medicine? Because maybe there's some folks who are maybe newer to acupuncture, so it might be helpful just to help people better understand what that means. The ABRM, or the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine, is a, um, um, a specialty board within the profession of Chinese medicine that certifies members who have a minimum competency in understanding reproductive health and fertility. And the reason this board was created was not created by me. It was created by a good friend of mine who unfortunately uh, is no longer with us. He passed away several years ago. Um, But it was a passion of his um, to create this board really for the public, for the public good. What he saw and what, what the community was seeing is that everybody um, who would graduate from school with, um, with you know, no more than a day of practice for, for the most part, could come out of school and say, I'm a fertility specialist and hang their shingle. And, you know, the public would not know any better in terms of their experience and knowledge and understanding of the profession. And certainly as it is with any, prof- with any specialty, there's a lot of intricacies and details within the specialty of reproductive health and fertility that if you don't have true knowledge and experience within this field, 
you're not going to be able to manage patients properly. Like at, at a very basic level, you'll be able to take care of patients. But once patients start getting more complex, they've been on the fertility journey for longer, and um, they're going through some assisted technique potentially, um, and you really need to start looking at uh, hormone testing in depthly and understand how to work with the IVF world and the IUI world and the fertility clinics. There's a lot for a professional to know and understand. Um, and so the goal when the, when the um, organization was created was to make sure that those, uh, those uh, providers who were certified by us had that minimum, minimum competency and understanding so that when a couple or individual went to see them for their fertility needs, that they could feel confident and comfortable that they were seeing somebody with knowledge and experience to properly treat them. And so that's exactly what the board has done. It's been around now for, if I'm not mistaken, 12 or 13 years. And um, every member of the organization, there's about 450 right now. We've got a, a group who, of examinees who we're waiting to get their results on. But everyone who's in the organization has t- sat for the exam. It's a six-hour test to take. Um, they have to have, be able to pass that exam. And then they have to maintain their credentials with us annually by taking a continued education and staying uh, current with their membership. It's a really, really unique, special group of individuals who, you know, I, I don't say this biasly, I'm constantly amazed by the individuals who are part of this organization, their leadership, their knowledge, uh, their ability to work with their patients and the fertility world at large. It's really a beautiful thing to see. And so for anyone who's out there who is looking to work with an acupuncturist, you know, first and foremost, they absolutely should be looking to see if there is an ABORM fellow in their area that they should be seeing. And that's just as simple as going to the website, aborm.org, um, and searching by your zip code. I know in my journey, I went to several different acupuncturists and they all did a variety of treatments. And I wasn't always sure, is this the right treatment or not? So before we get into rating, uh, further rating the acupuncturists outside of going to this website, I'd love to better understand maybe at a more granular, granular level, how an acupuncturist can support women. And you know, I know that you are known as the fertility expert. And in previous conversations, I think one of the things we talked about is it's not just about getting pregnant, potentially doing that IVF and getting to that end goal. There's really understanding the underlying reasons why someone may struggle to conceive. And in a lot of cases, there may be women who are struggling with reproductive health conditions who aren't wanting to conceive. And I can imagine um, you know, you or, or others in your field can help them. So perhaps you can give some examples around how acupuncture can support women's reproductive health. Yeah, I think that's a great place to work to start. And then there were so many wonderful questions you just put into that question um, that I think we can kind of delve into after that. You know, when it comes to acupuncture, I think the first thing that everybody needs to understand is what does it what does it all mean like how do do we define acupuncture and i think in the united states 
when someone says acupuncture, they're really meaning a Chinese medical doctor. And in China, they're just called a doctor <laughs> or a Chinese medicine doctor. But those are synonymous for the most part in the United States. And this is a bit different across the globe. But for the most part in the United States, if you are an acupuncturist, with very few exceptions, you actually are a Chinese medicine doctor. You, so when you're going to see your acupuncturist, you're really going to see that type of person. They have an understanding of your body, both from a Western perspective and an Eastern medicine perspective, which is very different. And they have many tools in their belt aside from just the therapy or treatment of acupuncture, which is just one of their tools. So Chinese medicine, meaning Chinese herbs, cupping, moxibustion, dietary recommendations, lifestyle recommendations. There's a whole gamut of uh, therapies that we have at our disposal that we can use at any given time for any of our patients. And so that term acupuncturist has been, I think, been meant to mean more in the United States. But that's, So I just wanted to kind of clarify that from the onset. When it comes to what we can do for fertility, there's many things. The thing that I, I want everyone to also uh, recognize and somewhat separate is that we do separate and think potentially about acupuncture and Chinese herbs a bit differently. Okay. When we want to start to affect somebody internally, um, we want to change the constitution, the environment of the body, then often we think about herbs. And I think one of the easiest ways to think about that is let's just talk about egg quality for a moment. If we want to change egg quality in a fertility patient and improve that function, acupuncture is, is just one tool, but it's probably not at the top of the list of tools we would use for egg quality. We're trying to change something at a cellular level, the cells of the follicles that a woman is producing. And so for that, we need to ingest something. And that's where herbs come in, creating a Chinese herbal formula that is going to be specifically given to a patient based on their constitution. And that over time is changing the chemical structure of the body and is influencing the body chemically right? So we're, we're taking something to change something, just like you would take CoQ10, for instance, to do the same thing. When, when, when I think about acupuncture, it's not that it can't affect egg quality, but it does it in a different way. Acupuncture does two main things when we're thinking about fertility. The first is that it increases blood circulation. Um, so it, 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 it dilates the blood vessels increasing the amount of blood circulating through the body. And then by the, by the point prescription or the points that we're choosing for that visit for that patient, we're directing the blood to a specific part of the body. Okay. We want it to go to the ovaries or the uterus. You know, if someone, uh, you know, we're not talking about pain, but if someone had elbow pain, for instance, you know, the point prescription for that in terms of bringing more blood circulation to that area would be different than someone for egg quality. So we're trying to increase more blood circulation to the desired area or part of the body. And by bringing more blood circulation to that area, we're allowed, we're allowed to bring more nutrients and nourishment, thus supporting quality of the follicles in this situation, right? The other way that we help um, with acupuncture is by regulating the nervous system. 
And so stress is a big part of our medical world today. And many of us are in, are, um, have compromised nervous systems, are in a fight or flight response when it comes to uh, stress for various reasons. It doesn't have to be specifically around fertility, right? We could, it just could be work. It could be personal life, home life, whatever the circumstances is. Um, this, uh, on Monday, I spoke to a patient who she had finished her last uh, IVF cycle a year ago. And I asked her, so what have you been doing um, you know, to support yourself during the last year. And she says, nothing. Unfortunately, after my last IVF cycle, um, I bought a house, we renovated the house, and then the house burned down. The, the um, fireplace caught on fire and the house burned down. All of this in a year, right? So buying a house is stressful. Remodeling a house is super stressful. And then obviously now she doesn't have her house. It burned down and they're having to manage you know, living with her mom and, and just the remodel and, and uh, another remodel, right? So all of these things. So forget about the stress of just going through two IVF cycles, which she did prior to this. She had this, this is just life stress, right? Things happen and we, our bodies have to accommodate for those things. And so stress and our nervous system will get compromised. And if our body is in that fight or flight response, whether it's a constant fight or flight response or, um, or intermittent, the, the, the body is not prioritizing reproductive function. It's, re, it's prioritizing other things um, because those things are more important for survival. And that's how it understands the fight or flight response. So one of the main things without going too far down that rabbit hole is that um, with acupuncture, we reset the nervous system, we regulate it. And so, the nervous system can kind of calm down, you can rest, you can rejuvenate, you can recover. And so there is this process. So then the natural question of anybody listening would say, well, how does stress impact fertility? I think we can all agree that stress makes any medical condition worse. I think that's a given. There's hundreds of thousands of research studies on PubMed just about stress influencing anything. Fertility is no different. And so if you think about uh, a couple of different processes in the body. Okay, one is called the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Your adrenal glands are your stress glands, your nervous system. And so your, when, you, when you have an increased amount of stress, your adrenal glands secrete more hormones, epinephrine, norepinephrine, DHEA, cortisol. Um, those two probably are more common or more familiar to those listening. And that is going to communicate... Um, and send the signal to your hypothalamus and pituitary. And they're trying to now regulate your stress response, those three glands. Well, the hypothalamus and pituitary are also part of your endocrine system, and they have a huge influence on your body and your fertility. One, there's another access, which is the hypothalamus, pituitary, and thyroid. Okay, that's how we regulate thyroid. So stress can absolutely impact thyroid function which does have an effect and influence on fertility. And then there's another axis, which is the hypothalamus, pituitary, and ovaries or gonads in men, which then connects to um, you know, the fertility side of things. Well, FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, LH, are produced in the hypothalamus and pituitary. And your primary hormones, female or male, testosterone, estrogen, 
uh, progesterone, those are all produced either in the ovaries or the gonad. So you can see how stress on one side is going to start to influence over time, either thyroid function or ovarian function or um, sperm quality. And so these are things that we need to regulate. So by regulating stress, we have a benefit on the overall body and support just with overall health because we all feel better. You've had acupuncture. You, you leave acupuncture, you feel more grounded, you feel more calm and relaxed for the most part. But also it is supporting um, the regulation of hormones um, to help regulate hormones, to help regulate a men regular menstrual cycle, and hopefully also support good egg quality. So there's a lot of different things that we can do with Chinese medicine. And I'll start to use that term instead of specifically acupuncture where appropriate that can influence fertility overall. And that's just like a little sample of how that works. Now let's talk a little bit about stress. So you explained very credibly and in great detail around how Chinese medicine, acupuncture can help stress. There's a couple of things I wanted to bring up that I keep hearing, and I'd love for you to comment. One is, I recall interviewing a reproductive endocrinologist who had shared that the data shows stress does not impact infertility, which I was surprised to hear because even anecdotally thinking about my own experience and with all the women that I've seen struggling, I don't see how stress couldn't be a factor. The other data, I shouldn't say data point, but the other comment that a lot of women in the fertility, infertility space speak about is, oh, well, when there was wartime, uh, fertility rates did not get impacted, so you can easily get pregnant under stress. So I'd love for you to comment around those two areas to perhaps help people understand maybe where that's coming from, knowing how the body actually acts and from a mechanical perspective, how stress likely does impact one's ability to succeed. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure why that reproductive endocrinologist mentioned that stress doesn't impact things um, because every REI that I've spoken to has typically said that it does. And there actually is an interesting research article published by a couple of ABORM or one ABORM fellow and a reproductive endocrinologist specifically showing how cortisol levels are regulated during an IVF cycle with the incorporation of acupuncture and how that improved success rates of uh, those given cycles. Um, so for me, that's um, anyone that would say otherwise, I think uh, surprises me. I think it's very clear. And we know today, hands down, we know that stress impacts any medical condition. Now, are there going to be some individuals that are more resilient, that they are better able to adapt and manage stressful situations and thus maybe stress doesn't affect them in the same way that it affects others going through the same process and the same treatments? Absolutely, right? Because none of us are the same. We're all unique and different individuals with our own ability to adapt and uh, support our bodies. But hands down, I do think and have seen it repeatedly over and over. And just having patients just do the mere fact of uh, the, um, a simple exercise of a five-minute meditation once or twice a day, that alone has made a profound impact on people's ability to conceive. 
So I do think that that is uh, a big factor. Now, that piece, which is is interesting that you brought up and one that I, I have not thought about much, but but about, you know, conception rates maybe even going up or, or not changing that much during wartime is interesting. I would bet there was a period of time that during wartime it did go down, but then um, it self-regulated like as people became more accustomed to the fact that we were at war. I think that those numbers would probably just self-regulate and adjust on their own. But I think there's a difference between being in war actively, like you are the person who is in battle, versus us as a country being at war and being at home. Like, yes, life is different at home when we're at war and we have to accommodate. And certainly if we have a family member who's fighting, you know, the way we're responding to that is different. But the initial stress of being at war kind of is there and then it settles down and our body adjusts. But there's lots of factors, I think, specifically as it relates to stress and an individual's ability to cope and manage that, um, that I'm sure some of those research studies are not necessarily taking into account. I think you asked another question, but I just don't recall it right now. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I think that's it. And thank you for that, that consideration, especially around the, the wartime point, because I know that a lot of people make it as a casual statement. And just from what I've observed, I just don't see how stress couldn't play a role. And I think the way you had explained how the body works in a systemic way and how stress impacts it, I think perhaps will help people convince that it does does play a role. Yeah, you know, I think a good, I I agree. I think a good example, because this is one that I often hear more so than like war, is I hear how come that drug addict can get pregnant and I can't. And they're taking all these drugs, right? They're on heroin or whatever it is. That's a good one. And so one aspect is they would say, well, isn't that, aren't they under, aren't they putting a stress and a toxin in their body? They are, but typically the, one, the, the individuals you see who are getting pregnant, who are using some form of, of drug <clears throat> and are addicted, they're younger. So their um, reproductive response is going to be a little bit different. But two, think about it this way. Actually, they're under probably the least amount of stress when they're high. They are in euphoria. They are relaxed. And that's probably when things are happening. So we tend to think of it, you know, obviously, because it's not viewed as a positive thing that someone who's um, addicted, it, it you know, they're causing all sorts of harm to their body, and they are. But there's also other things to consider in those situations. That being said, I think it's very easy for us to look at other people who are getting pregnant and compare ourselves to it. I think what we all need to recognize with that is that we're all different, we're all unique, and we all have our own issues or situations to burden and to overcome. Um, and theirs or that person's is going to be different than mine you know, where, where my weakness constitutionally for my body health-wise is my digestive system. Somebody else's could be something else. And, you know, that's where these customized um, plans, like really getting to the root issue for people is going to be, I think, the biggest difference in making a change in their reproductive function. Now, we spoke about Chinese medicine and how it can help fertility, which I would define as being very specific to egg health, the 
retrieval, the transfer, and uh, making sure during the two-week wait and moving forward, the body is set up for success. But there are a lot of underlying conditions that can impact this as well, besides the things that Chinese medicine can directly help. And from our Facebook group, a couple of folks were asking about, as an example, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. as PCOS. So -hmm. maybe you could talk a little bit about how Chinese medicine can support people who struggle with those conditions. Yeah, it's an excellent question. The, The one thing I want everyone to understand is, first and foremost, almost entirely in the United States, the research studies that have been done, and actually I would say in, um, in Western countries, the research that's been done around Chinese medicine is specific, has mostly been around acupuncture. There are very few, but they're more recent, and hopefully we're going in that direction, where we're seeing research study around uh, acupuncture and Chinese herbs for individuals and that, that they're customized. And that's when we tend to see the biggest profound influence on results. But the way they've been utilized is acupuncture to support and make IVF more effective. So that's typically where the research has been for, I think for obvious reasons, because uh, IVF is so expensive um, and it's such an investment and such a process that we want to minimize the amount of cycles somebody goes through and the, um, and the cost, the expense that someone has to incur. So it's very, it makes a lot of sense why we'd see this in specific relationship to IVF. And there is results and there are good success rates and, and research to support that process um, with IVF and acupuncture. That being said, there's so much more that Chinese medicine can offer to uh, a couple going through a reproductive issues or a fertility journey, like you mentioned, to support them, to get them to that point in time, or, or hopefully allow them to get pregnant naturally. And so Hashimoto's and PCOS are definitely two of those things. I would throw all sorts of other conditions into it, endometriosis, really any reproductive issue that you have that could be um, affecting your your body, whether you're trying to get pregnant or not. Um, acupuncture has had thousands of years of experience treating successfully, but um, we're going to focus on these two since those were the two questions. So PCOS is the most common female endocrine disorder around, uh, stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And one of the uh, well, there, there's a lot of aspects to PCOS, but some of the key things that come around is typically an irregular cycle or a woman who doesn't menstruate or ovulate or does that very irregularly. And so one of the things that Chinese medicine does very, very well is actually help to regulate a menstrual cycle, cause more regular, consistent ovulation. And of all the non-IVF reproductive conditions that research has been done on with Chinese medicine, PCOS is at the top of that list. Um, and there is, we have plenty of really good research to show how beneficial it is to support PCOS and regulate a cycle. And so with that, if you're able to cause a woman to have a regular ovulation, cause her to have a more regular and consistent uh, cycle, she has a much higher chance and opportunity to conceive naturally Um, on her own with her partner. So that is something that we routinely see um, with with PCOS. Uh, Thyroid and Hashimoto's is a little bit different. So um, with, with thyroid disease, often 
and hypothyroidism specifically, often I do recommend to patients that one aspect of their treatment should be to be on medication if they are planning to conceive, um, because for the long-term health of the mom, the pregnancy, and the baby, it is much better to be and more stable for your thyroid to be on medication. FemPower Health is pleased to partner with the upcoming FemTech and Consumer Innovation Summit. The summit is the latest deep dive event, part of the Women's Health Innovation Series, looking to tackle this growing sector of women's health, having had continental success in driving innovation, investment, research, and partnerships in traditional women's health care by bringing together critical stakeholders. Join us in New York on June 7th and 8th as we channel this success into the consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. But when we're talking about when we're talking about Hashimoto's, that's a bit different. So the thing that I think we all need to understand with Hashimoto's is that it's a variation of hypothyroidism, a more extreme case. So this is the autoimmune component of hypothyroidism. Now, the medication out there is meant to treat hypothyroidism, not Hashimoto's. And so the way I like to work with patients with this is have them get on some medication. I'm not the biggest fan of Synthroid or Levothyroxine, so I do like to recommend and have them work with their physician to get on um, a more bioidentical form um, that doesn't have a lot of fillers and and won't uh, impact their overall health in other ways. And typically patients do better with those medications, but then utilize our medicine, Chinese medicine, nutrition, lifestyle changes, supplements and herbs and so forth to support the autoimmune component, which Western medicine, conventional medicine really does not do a very good job of doing and blending those two together to support the body um, so that their immune system is not impacting and potentially rejecting the embryo from implantation and able to hold a successful pregnancy to term. When it comes to Hashimoto's, some of the things that I've heard is that it can manifest in different ways. So for example, um, I know in a lot of cases, uh, women may be overweight. In other cases, they may not. Have you seen that as well? Because I know diagnosing it can be a challenge because there's disagreement on what normal thyroid levels are. I've been hearing some clinics are now starting to test every single patient for potential Hashimoto's because they are realizing there's a lot more cases out there than one thinks. Um, but I'd love to understand, you know, because even just getting this diagnosed, much less treating it is, is a challenge. So would you say that it does manifest in different ways depending on the person? Absolutely. Yeah. I do not um, use symptoms as my only guide for deciding if I'm going to test a patient for you know, thyroid disease in some fashion. So in, in California where I practice, I'm primary care, I can order labs for, for my patients. And so routinely what I typically just see is that patients just have their um, TSH checked, their thyroid stimulating hormone, which is the primary hormone. And when you take medication, that's what you're treating is your TSH levels primarily. 
that's typically, if they've had thyroid testing, that's typically all they've had done. Um, and that's not sufficient enough for me. I've seen, I, I can't even begin to count how many patients I've seen where TSH is normal or relatively normal, but their other thyroid values and antibodies are abnormal. And so you really need a con- comprehensive thyroid panel, which is typically what I run for all my patients, regardless of symptoms just to rule that out. Obviously, if they have thyroid symptoms, then I'm going to bump that to the top of the list. But hands down, I think you can't just judge it based on symptoms or if someone is gaining weight or cold. You know, you you really do need to look at lab values and rule it out through blood tests to confirm if they do or do not have it and then create a proper plan around that. I think that was the question you were asking. Was that correct? Yes. Yeah. And then for one of the things that we do believe is that women need to be armed with the right information when they go to their clinician. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about what are the tests for a full thyroid panel so that if they do go to a physician and um, ask, then they know exactly what to ask. Like, is it enough for them to say, I'd like a full thyroid panel or do they need to list out <laughs> what those are? <clears throat> you should, so, <laughs> so you should list it out for sure. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what those are in just a moment. But I don't want anyone to be surprised if you go to your GP, your OB, or even your REI, your fertility doctor, and ask for a full, full thyroid panel. Please don't be surprised if they say no. Or... If they say yes, but then when you get the results back, it's not a full panel because typically what they order is a TSH with reflex. And so if the TSH comes up abnormal, then it triggers the lab to run other thyroid labs. But if it's within normal range and that parameter is typically large, you know, on on most lab companies, it's 0.4 to 4.5 or 5.4, which is a very big range. Okay. In the fertility world, we want to see your TSH be between 1.1 and 2, or even as high as uh, 2.5. But once we start to see that creep up, we do want to, we want to start to treat that and address that. I never like to see anything over three, and I can't tell you how often I do see it and it's been ignored. So when it comes to, I do want you to have the ammunition to go in to ask for the right things. I just don't want you to be frustrated or surprised if it's not done because often your physicians are influenced by either the medical system they work within, the insurance plans that they work with, or they just don't see the need. And so, you you know, there's many variables at play when they're trying to decide if they're going to order those labs for you. Now you can take control of that and order these labs on your own. There's plenty of resources to do lab testing on your own, which I always encourage patients to do. And if you've got another health provider who's part of your team, often they could hopefully order that for you without much uh, fuss. But if you're going to go in and ask for your own labs done, so you want to have a TSH, a T3 and a T4, also a free T3 and a free T4. Your, uh, you can also add in reverse T3, T3 uptake, and your antibodies are TPO antibody and uh, antithyroglobulin antibody or thyroglobulin antibody. Sometimes it's written differently on different lab tests. Thank you for sharing that. And I can attest 
that I had this experience recently going to my OBGYN where I asked for the thyroid panel and it was stated that they would only order TSH. And I said, well, I know for sure that people disagree in the industry around what is a normal TSH level and that's not sufficient. I'd like the thyroid antibody. And the statement that was shared with me was, I'm not an endocrinologist. They're the ones who usually order that. And I did not feel that I needed to go to a specialist just for blood work. So I told her to do it and she did. So I I honestly felt like I was, uh, I don't know, being inappropriate just because of the look (laughs) I got. So I I walked out of there and I'm like, was I being mean? Um, But I just really felt like I was standing up for myself. And it's it's frustrating that this is the case. There's just so much disagreement and it really is like who you happen to run into. So I appreciate you educating everybody on this because I think it's important to know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, I actually didn't even know that story on your part. So, you know, this wasn't planned for everybody listening, but, but that's the same sort of story I hear all the time. And it's going to be more difficult if you're listening and you're in an HMO insurance plan, it's going to be more difficult for you to get those lab tests ordered than it would be with a PPO. But even then it's still, you know, it it can still be challenging. So you've got to really be an advocate for yourself um, not just for this, but for your entire fertility care and really push for the things that you truly believe that you need to be tested for. I don't believe that it's sufficient enough for someone to just say, no, it's not, it's, you don't need it. Well, show me I don't need it, right? Let's run the lab and tell me it was a waste of time. Exactly. Now back to PCOS, I just wanted to make a point of clarification because you know there are different types of practitioners you know we have chinese medicine professionals we have allopathic doctors which are the traditional mds we have naturopaths napro doctors which are the natural procreatives the list goes on now from i don't have pcos i'm not an expert in it i have interviewed experts on it and i do I've talked to a lot of people who have it and what i tend to see is People are prescribed metformin or take myonositol. They uh, work with nutritionists, hopefully, if they have a good team, uh, to adjust their diet to aid in PCOS. And in some cases, if they're dealing with some of the psychological issues that come with PCOS, they may see a psychologist or psychiatrist. And when you were speaking about PCOS, there did not seem to be uh, point made around like the metformin and myelinositol, yet with Hashimoto's there was. So I'm just curious <laughs> because I, I, you know, look, there's so many different ways to treat people. And again, I'm on a mission to give people the whole picture so that they can make the best decision from themselves based on whatever their situation and beliefs are. So I'd love to get your thoughts around PCOS and some of the traditional ways versus some of the Chinese medicine practices that you've uh, worked with women on. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And when we, when we were talking about PCOS before, I by no means meant to minimize it. I can go on for an hour or two and have on several other interviews just on PCOS. Oh, I didn't uh, think you were minimizing it, but I definitely yeah, yeah. want to <laughs> <laughs> um, So for everyone listening, most often when you are talking about PCOS or someone mentions PCOS, they're talking about the classic presentation of PCOS, the textbook, overweight, um, irregular cycles, unwanted body hair or facial hair, cystic acne, various levels of hormones that are elevated. And so, but that only is a portion 
of all PCOS patients. About 50% of my patient base with PCOS are that type of patient, you know, with some variation. Uh, the other 50% are atypical. They are thin, they have a regular cycle, they have some variation, right? And so we can either break down PCOS into four different types or 10 different types, depending on, you know, what you're, what uh, parameters you're looking at and how you want to break it down. You might not have the full-blown syndrome, but you still might be polycystic in some fashion or show symptoms and signs of it that do need to be accounted for and addressed. I think that, well, with regards to medication, what everyone should understand is that metformin is used off-label to treat PCOS. Does it help with some patients? Yes, I do believe that it can help with some patients who have the full-blown classic presentation, even though it's still not my preferred way to treat them um, with PCOS, uh, those women with PCOS with metformin. But it can help in those individuals. What I find is that metformin is now used as the, the, the magic pill for anyone who comes in or might even be close to having PCOS and they just give it to patients. And, and I don't think that that's I don't think that's correct from my vantage point. And I think there's a lot of other things that you can be doing like ionisetol. But I use the word ionisetol versus myoinisetol because for PCOS patients, I do think the preferred is a combination of myoinisetol and dechiroinisetol. That's what the research shows. And that's what we prefer to use with our PCOS patients is a blend and ratio of those two together. Um, the research actually does show that often that works better than metformin. Um, and so for my PCOS patients, that is typically a part of the puzzle. But what we have to also recognize is whether we're talking about metformin or the, the combination of inositols is they are meant to regulate blood sugar and the inositols can also help a little bit with egg quality um, and maturation of the egg, but they don't help with a lot of the other uh, signs and symptoms of PCOS. Often I see what happens is the androgen component of PCOS is ignored because patients are just given metformin and think that it's going to treat everything and it doesn't. You know, managing androgen levels, lowering those, addressing all the other areas that, it, that you mentioned previously lifestyle and diet are absolutely imperative with my PCOS patients and are key foundational pieces that need to be accounted for and part of the plan when we work with PCOS patients. But then acupuncture is a huge piece of it and uh, Chinese herbs because they do such a good job of reducing androgens, of helping the follicles to mature, of regulating a menstrual cycle and supporting ovulation. So for me, those two pieces are, are big components of supporting any woman with PCOS. Like one of the interesting things about PCOS is that the, the shell around the follicle um, is a little bit harder. So it's harder to, for that shell to break open and in two folds, either ovulate and the, the shell around the egg then is also harder. And so it's harder for the sperm to get in. And so you want to try to soften that. And we can actually do that with Chinese herbs. Thank you for clarifying that information because, there, again, there's just so many things that can be done to treat conditions. And like you said, every individual is different. And I, I do see a, a personalized medicine 
pathway for women's health. And I definitely see that Chinese medicine does take that into account. So let's, let's talk about some of the tactics around acupuncture. <laughs> and here's why I bring this up. So in my 10 years, I not only did I see 10 reproductive endocrinologists, the best of the best here in New York City, but I also saw quite a handful of acupuncturists and I saw a variety. I had one extreme, which was I showed up, no questions were asked. Basically it was are you in the middle of ovulating or do you have your period? And that was it. And then needles <laughs> were put in and I was done. And I was new to it. I had no idea. And, you know, as I started learning and talking to more people, I started to find others because I never felt different when I would leave the acupuncturist. And so I thought something must be up. And as I asked questions, I found others. And, you know, then I found the other extreme, which is they sit with you before every single appointment for however long you need to talk. They ask all sorts of questions about what's going on personally, what's going on with your body, and then do custom trigger points based on that and talk about either supplements to be taking or Chinese herbs. Sometimes, you know, moxa is done, cupping, all the examples that you gave. And so if someone were to go to an acupuncturist, like what, what should it look like? And in an ideal state, is there like a plan? So come for three months and we'll do these things and then we'll assess if you come further. Or is it you go for your life and they'll never tell you to stop because you should just keep going. Like what, what should people expect in the correct way? Because I think, again, since we don't know and we all learn as we go, there's no instruction book. What, what should someone do to make sure they're getting the proper care? It's such a great question. The only reason I chuckle is it's just from my personal experience before I ever became an acupuncturist and before I started studying Chinese medicine, I, um, like I mentioned, I had digestive issues and I, that's how I got started with acupuncture. And I went to see my acupuncturist and I was much younger, so I didn't really question anything, but I, I really enjoyed the treatment. So for me, it was fine. I, I love to go, but I went, every, she said, okay, I'll see you next week. And I went every week and, you know, two years go by and I'm still going every week. And at some point I said to myself, I'm better. I feel better. Do I, you know, I wouldn't be going to see my medical doctor every week. Why am I still coming in every week? Right. And so when I got into the medicine and started practicing, it was really important to me that I was clear with my patients about a plan, a prognosis, an expectation. That is not something that everybody in the profession does. And we also have to understand to some degree, acupuncture is a bit of an art. So there is a lot of individuality in terms of, um, and variation from one provider to the other in terms of how they approach a patient and how they treat a patient. You know, you can have 10 Chinese medicine doctors in a room, each one's going to treat that same patient slightly differently, that patient potentially will still get better, right? But with that, I think we all do want to expect and, and should expect and demand certain things from our providers, just like we would from anybody else. So the other reason I chuckled when you asked that question is, we do a full evaluation and exam with our patients when they come in for their first visit. But I've had some people say, well, can't you just give me acupuncture? I mean, I haven't had, I've been to other acupuncturists and they don't do an exam, to which my answer is, that doesn't mean it's correct. <laughs> so um, look, we are medical professionals. 
I am a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. If you go in to see your medical provider, they are doing an evaluation. They are doing an exam before they know how to treat you and what recommendations they are going to use. They can't just, they're not just going to prescribe medication or say you need surgery without doing a proper evaluation. You have to think about our medicine in the same way. We can't properly, properly diagnose you without an evaluation, which partly is paperwork. Partly is question questioning you, partly is pulse diagnosis and tongue diagnosis and visually looking at you and looking at labs. So it's a, in my office, it's a combination of all of those things to be able to create a proper diagnosis for patients, to be able to create a proper plan of, of action and treatment for you, right? So I think first and foremost, we should all at the very least expect that from our medical professionals and Chinese medicine physicians. But then, you know, in my office, after my evaluation and after I have um, enough lab testing done and so forth, I do write out a plan. We write out a treatment plan for patients because I think it's important for them to understand where we are now and where we want to go and how are we going to get there. I can't assume that I'm always going to get results with everybody. And at the end of my treatment plan, which is usually to start three months, because I feel like I need a minimum of three months to work with patients to see change and progress in their cycles and their health, then we sit down for a reevaluation and we look back. Where are you at? What's the progress like? I always want to be accountable to myself. And we all can't always remember where a patient was when they started, which is why we review where they were when they started and then review where they are now to see what has changed, what hasn't. And then we have a conversation. Where do we go from here? But for me, that's a partnership. That's a conversation we have together. Maybe their timeline has changed and I want to be able to meet them where they're at and support them through that process. Um, I don't want to make any assumptions. So for me, it's about creating a proper plan of care, having a treatment plan, having a point in time where we do a reevaluation to reassess, keep us all in check. Um, when patients are doing really well, they also forget how bad things were potentially. So it's good for everyone to revisit. This is where you were. This is you, where you are now. And then where do we want to go and how, how are we going to get there? Um, so I do think personally, that is something that we should all be doing for our patients and that all of our patients should be expecting and demanding from their providers. You know, to be going on endlessly seems odd to me. Um, you wouldn't do that with anything else. Now, I do have patients who say, I love my acupuncture. I'm going to come back weekly because this is something that I enjoy and, and is really valuable to me. But that's, some, that's a decision that they make, right? Not a decision that I make. That makes sense. And I will tell you, when I found a great acupuncturist, I have stayed with her <laughs> every single week. <laughs> now, when... Uh, You've been speaking throughout the conversation. You've mentioned or alluded to the fact that you are able to get blood work. And I think we had discussed um, in getting to know each other that on the East Coast and West Coast, there's different things that are allowed by an acupuncturist. And I thought it was really interesting information. And I thought we could maybe share that with the group because, again, we need to be armed with how the medical system works so that we can advocate for ourselves in the best way. And I think having that knowledge and the impact of what living on one coast or another based on the regulations of the dates and how that impacts what 
a various clinician, whether it's an allopathic doctor or a Chinese medicine doctor. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how the different laws impact the way one is allowed to be treated. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a really important piece that is often overlooked. One is just within the fertility world, you will see that fertility treatments, whether they are through a Chinese medicine provider or um, a reproductive endocrinologist, do tend to differ at different uh, to differ from at different parts of the country, the northeast versus the southeast versus the west coast, and so on. You will see some variations um, in terms of what clinics are comfortable doing, where they will go, and where they won't go. The same is true for Chinese medicine. Uh, as an example, New York in New York, acupuncturists cannot order labs. It's not within their scope of practice. In Florida, they can do all sorts of things. They can order labs, their primary care, they can do injections, they can do trigger point injections. Um, I think they can do IVs, like it's all sorts of different things in Florida than, they, than, than also in California, right? And so in California, we are primary care. So I can order all sorts of labs. I can do so many things that some of my other colleagues in different parts of the country are restricted by. And it is a state by state um, situation. I don't pretend to know the laws in each state, but what I would say is one of the things you should be asking your acupuncturist when you go in is, well, what are you able to do for me? Um, you know, how can you provide me the care that I need? And do we need to work as a team with somebody else to get me the most comprehensive care that I need? So in my office, one of the things that we can't do um, as part of our license is prescribe medication but the naturopath that works in my office can. So I work in conjunction with her when a patient does need something that I can't provide. And so it's about really having someone that you're working with that is comfortable understanding those parameters and how to get you what you need and to work with those in the community to support you and get you what you need as well. And that's also part of the reason why I love the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine because most of those providers, I can't say that I've spoken to all of them personally because I haven't, but most of those providers are very comfortable managing patients in that world and helping them to get what they need. So look, medicine is practiced differently in all parts of the world. Our country is no different and we should try to understand that when it comes to um, your reproductive needs and your fertility needs. And so you might be better off if you live in one, in one state, you might be better off actually going to a different part of the country to get your uh, fertility care, um, if that makes sense for you, because you might get more of what you need. Um, two examples of that that I think of, um, which are specifically in the realm of um, the fertility clinics is, one is, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about PRP and ovarian rejuvenation, where there's really like two or three clinics in the country that do it. So if that's something you're needing, right, you're not going to, you might not get it in your local city. Um, the other thing is uh, we, we often work with a lot of patients who do what's called mini IVF, uh, very low stimulation or no medication uh, to do IVF. And that's also um, not practiced in most clinics. Um, and so there, these are reasons why you want to understand what your, local clinics and providers are able to provide you and, and what you need and where you might need to go for those things. 
tell us, I mean, this has been a very helpful discussion and insightful, and I probably could ask you a hundred more questions, <laughs> but, but I want to be respectful of your time. So maybe we could end with, what would you say is your greatest hope for women's reproductive health? I think my greatest hope is that uh, is probably twofold. One is that the couples who have been told no or you can't don't take that as the sole answer and they start to learn how to believe in themselves again and get the answers that they need. Because I do believe in most cases there is hope and there is possibility, but we've been knocked down so often that we start to believe all the negative talk and knows that we've been told. And I do also hope that we start to see a lot more collaboration between the conventional allopathic reproductive world and the integrative um, medicine, Chinese medicine, functional medicine world to really start to provide patients with the more comprehensive care that they need and really treat them as a whole person versus just their ovaries or their uterus or their testes and trying to really kind of force everyone into this IVF box. I'd love to see a little bit more growth in that area. And what about inspiration? What inspires you to do what you do and to continue your path? Oh, that's easy. My patients, um, you know, all these women and couples who send me pictures um, and show me, you know, this is, this is my baby. This is, you know, this is the person you helped me bring into this world, really that inspires me on a daily basis. And, you know, the, the only picture of a baby that sits on my desk at my office, aside from my kids is the first baby that I ever helped conceive is, is her baby picture. It just reminds me of where I was and how important she was to my career and my path. And that's really the inspiration is really allowing it, it is being there for patients to support them so that they can have the families that they want. That gave me chills. Thank you for sharing that. Um, again, I, I really appreciate your time. I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to be introduced to you and have this conversation. I think it's going to provide a lot of helpful and much needed information to fill the gaps for women because it is so challenging. I mean, women spend years and several doctors before be, being diagnosed, whether again, they're trying for a child or not. And I think just knowledge is power. And I appreciate you sharing yours. I think it will prove quite helpful for women. So thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed being here and talking with you. Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe to our show. And another way to support FemPower Health Podcast is to leave a review 
where you listen to podcasts. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for information purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.